0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here, host, Dadryl Leyland. I'm a big fan of having my expectations challenged. For years, I've been of the opinion that Sylvester McCoy was easily the worst actor to play Doctor Who. Colin Baker had the worst tenure, but that was largely out of Baker's control, as he wasn't the producer or writer, although he has written Doctor Who stories since, and he's pretty good at it. But with Baker as terrible as his run was, and season 23 may be the single worst season of the show ever, Baker was trying his best... And, having seen him in other things, I knew it wasn't him that was the problem. McCoy was different. Sylvester McCoy was a clown. His career before who was not that of an actor, or not that I recalled. He was one of the O men on Jigsaw and appeared on Tiz Walls and Eureka, all kids shows, and a specific type of kid show at that. Of course, now I'm older and more mature. I know that stuff is acting, just of a different sort. But at the time, this didn't bode well for McCoy's run. My reticence was borne out with McCoy's first story, Time and the Run," a truly dreadful piece of genre television with an awful Doctor, McCoy, an awful companion, Mel, played by Bonnie Langford, and an awful script by Pip and Jane Baker. It was not an auspicious beginning. I'd already started moving away from Doctor Who before then, Peter Davison had left the show in rude health with the sublime The Caves of Andrazani, but this was followed up a week later with Colin Baker's first story The Twin Dilemma, which was borderline unwatchable. Things didn't improve in his first season. Baker's Doctor was a bully, a thug, pretty unlikable, a true Doctor Nasty. I stopped watching. See, back then, we didn't hate-watch or make two-hour rambling YouTube videos about why we don't like things, normally to rapturous applause. We simply stopped watching. I wasn't the only one. Baker's Doctor's ratings were not good, even if by today's standards they aren't terrible, but more importantly, his episodes aren't good. Davison's era had quality control problems, certainly, but nothing in the Baker run Can hold a candle to the best Peter Davison stories. And after Baker's first season, the show was rested. Rested is BBC speak for cancelled. It was saved by the fans, which is ironic given that the fans are now the ones saying the show should be rested, and it was given another chance to get it right. It completely dropped the ball. The almost meta 14-part story The Trial of a Time Lord was supposed to be The Doctor's Triumphant Return. Sadly, the numerous script problems, the incoherent ending to a convoluted narrative and the general unpleasantness of the show at this point wasn't Baker's fault, but he took the fall. He remains the only actor not to leave the show of his own violation. His replacement was McCoy, and the show went from bad to worse. Now, Doctor Who has had bad runs before. Even the unassailable Tom Baker has season 17, which, City of Death accepted, is pretty lousy. Baker's final season saw the ratings plummet from upwards of 15 million down to four. A change in Doctor and time slot worked for Peter Davison, but he has bad shows, if not an outright bad season. Colin Baker has nothing but bad seasons. Likewise, McCoy's first season is mostly awful. Again, I ditched the show after the first episode, having come back to give this new Doctor a try. There are still McCoy and Baker stories I have never seen. Some of that will be rectified by the end of this episode. In recent years, though, McCoy has been reappraised. Season 26, the last season of the original run, is put on a pedestal as a classic, perhaps even one of the best in the history of the show. I've never seen it in its entirety, so with the recent Blu-ray release, I took the plunge. Am I wrong? Is Sylvester McCoy actually really good as Doctor Who? Let's find out, should we? First off, this is the first of the new Blu-ray releases I have bought. I had the first one in my hands when I was in Scotland last year, but I didn't buy it because I've got all the Tom Baker stories on DVD. Since then, the price skyrocketed, so I didn't bother buying the others as I could never have a full set. Since then, the BBC went and re-released the first set, actually season 12, which was Tom Baker's first year, because of course they did. I bought season 26 because... Well, I'd heard good things about the Blu-rays and this was the first whole season they'd released that I didn't have any of the stories from. Well I didn't have any of the stories from Colin Baker's Trial of the Time Lord Blu-ray season either, but I'm not a masochist. The reviews are true. The sets themselves are amazing. The packaging is top notch, with a neat little booklet of behind the scenes information and what's on each disc. This is important. Nowadays, laziness and penny-pinching have resulted in the companies not even putting what episodes or features are on each disc in the packaging, meaning watching something is more of a chore than it should be. One would think that more would take a leaf out of the BBC's book here, making these physical packages a must-own rather than an afterthought. Battlefield, the first four-part story of the season, aired in September of 1989 and was written by Ben Aranovic and directed by Michael Kerrigan. It's a pretty fast-paced opener, a little too fast-paced in places, and it could really have done with slowing down a bit. Doing some reading, I learned that this was originally a three-part story, and Aronovich regrets that when he was promoted to four parts, he didn't do a page one rewrite. Instead, he simply rewrote episode two and expanded it, leaving parts one and four alone. Part one, therefore, is quite fast, and the viewer is required to pay attention, which in and of itself is no bad thing, but it does mean a lot happens. The serial doesn't spoon-feed the audience, nothing is explained in part one, again, something that requires the audience to pay attention. It's very successful in that regard, keeping the viewers, in this case me, pretty gripped throughout. Mark Platt's novel of the story is more successful, though, as he obviously has more space to set up the story, and it has a far more intriguing opening. Part 1 also has Unit investigating strange occurrences at Lake Vortigern, and, coincidentally, the TARDIS picks up a distress signal that causes her to take the Doctor and Ace, played by Sophie Aldred, to the same place. Unit is now commanded by Brigadier Bambara, played by Angela Bruce, but the original Brig, Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart, played by a returning Nicholas Courtney, is called up after the Doctor's return is reported. There are pluses and minuses here in terms of production. Because the show is now all shot on videotape, there isn't the usual discrepancy between location and studio filming, and so the episode looks as good as anything Doctor Who ever did. Likewise, someone has finally learned how to dim the damn lights, giving the sets a distinctive and darker look. On the minus side, the score, whilst at least distinctive and unique, is horribly mixed, far too loud on the soundtrack. It frequently drowns out the dialogue. There's still a cheapness to it all, which is fine because this is Doctor Who, but the producers have gotten better at hiding the budget limitations. Part 2 of Battlefield is slightly infamous. The cliffhanger ending sees actress Sophie Aldred's character, Ace, trapped in a water tank. But the weight of the water was miscalculated and the toughened glass cracked and buckled, trapping Aldred in the tank. Sylvester McCoy saw what had happened and, alongside the crew, rushed to her aid. The incident was used in a BBC health and safety video for years afterwards on how not to do a stunt. Part 2 reveals that these strange occurrences are an invasion from an alternative dimension, with Black Knights, Morgan Le Fay, and Anselin, the acolyte of King Arthur. Ivanovitch doesn't look back on the story with the same fondness he reserves for his previous script, Remembrance of the Daleks. I think he's been a tad hard on himself. The script is taught... The story itself, interesting and well-researched, and there's a lot of genuine Arthurian mythology thrown in for the more literate King Arthur scholars. I'm not an Arthurian scholar, so I took it all at face value, but the info text on the episode confirms a lot of the details. When the brigadier arrives, he instantly recognises the Doctor, despite him looking like Peter Davison when they last met. It's actually a great scene, with the Brigadier pointing out that only the Doctor would be in this much bother, so it was pretty easy to narrow down who he was. The production team also bring back Bessie, the John Pertwee incarnation of the Doctor's roadster, for a cameo appearance. The show is moving to a more diverse cast, with Angela Bruce as Bambera, an international unit, and Ace's friend Sho Young, played by Ling Tai. The characters themselves are still a tad nationalistic, though, with a number of the characters asking various unit soldiers, Are you English? I'll have no trouble here, Tubbs! It all sounds very League of Gentlemen. The precious things of the shop? The writing for Battlefield does fall down with the youth speak. Perhaps it wasn't as cringe in 1989, but the slang used by Ace and Show Young is deeply embarrassing. Jean Marsh, as Morgaine, is clearly having an absolute blast, although she does occasionally border on pantomime, especially her delivery of the line, By Right of Conquest! Got a lot of rolling of the R's in that line. Battlefield ends up being quite a rollicking Doctor Who adventure, with wit, something to say about nuclear weapons, albeit nothing new, and good action set pieces. However, The Brigadier was supposed to die in this adventure, and his survival makes the whole thing feel inconsequential, with much of the foreboding foreshadowing not paying off due to the last-minute decision to not kill him off. Other setups don't pay off either, such as important characters like Shu not really adding up to much, and Excalibur's scabbard, which is signposted to be of great importance, suddenly getting ignored in the climax. Overall, though, this isn't at all bad. It's underfunded and looks cheap in places, especially the Destroyer, a big deal monster at the time, who now looks quite limited and a bit plasticky. It has more problems. McCoy still doesn't convince me when he's angry. Some of the scenes between Ace and Shue are decidedly am-dram, and the budget infusion wouldn't have hurt. There are some nice stunts, but the editing of the fight scenes is piss-poor in places, robbing them of any urgency. And some of the sword fighting is abysmal. It's really unfair to compare it to Game of Thrones but Robin of Sherwood was before this and had much more convincing fight choreography. Nevertheless, the script is entertaining enough with Aronovich chucking in everything from myths and legends to knights with atomic weapons to Morgaine being both campy and scurry often at the same time. The novel is better though using a prior draft of the script that had more exposition and explanation in it and fleshing out the characters more. The ending is also much better than the pseudo-comedy beat of the Briggs wife taking Bambura Ace and Shu out for the day, as it doesn't seem as rushed. One of the high points of Battlefield is the idea that the Doctor is Merlin, or will be Merlin at some future point. He even receives a letter from himself in one episode, although which version of himself isn't made clear. This is also where the producers seem to tone down McCoy's performance, and he's less the bumbling clown and a more thoughtful and perhaps devious doctor than we've seen before. And frankly, any chance to not see him play those damned spoons is a good thing. Most of the serials on this disc come in different versions, and Battlefield is no different. The serial is presented in its original TV four-part format, an extended feature-length version, and an extended four-part edit as released on the DVD. Battlefield neither benefits nor loses much in the extended cut, as it's only in the novel that the ideas can really be expanded upon. For example, Aronovich's original idea was that the knight's armour be futuristic, be more like Iron Man with on-screen displays and advanced weaponry, but the TV budget couldn't afford this, and obviously this is the same whichever edit of the television episode you watch. The book can do all these original ideas and much more. One serial that does benefit from having an extended version is Ghost Light, the next story on the set, and easily one of the more controversial Doctor Who episodes ever. Running almost a complete episode over time, Ghost Light lost 15 minutes in the edit to bring it in at three 25-minute episodes, and as such is either an impenetrable mess or one of the best stories ever made, depending upon to whom you speak. I watched the extended work print for the episodes, which features footage cut from the original broadcast. Ghost Light sees the Doctor take Ace to a Victorian house in 1883, the same house she would burn down in 1983 for an initiation ceremony. A large cast of Agatha Christie types occupy the house, and the Doctor discovers stone spaceships, Neanderthal manservants, insane aliens... And a creature that decides to destroy Earth when he feels that evolution has made his work obsolete. Can the Doctor manipulate this situation to his advantage? My initial thoughts after viewing this are more in line with the people who think it's pretty good. It's not so much an impenetrable script as one that just requires you really pay attention to it. The dialogue is exceptional in this one, especially after some of the more rancid youth-speak moments of Battlefield. Everything the Doctor says has some deeper meaning or is a nice historical or pop culture gag. Thematically, it's also very rich, tackling colonialism, race hatred, Darwinism and how the fear of change can lead you to stagnate. The serial looks really impressive, being of that kind of costume drama the BBC does so well and limiting it all to one location, the haunted house, it's easy on the budget as well. There's a lot going on, though. And this means that in the age of flicking through Twitter as you watch stuff, there's a lot you might miss. Ghostlight is Doctor Who as serious adult drama. And what's remarkable is that it works as well as it does. If the cast, as they claim on the Blu-ray extras, couldn't really understand what was going on, it doesn't show on screen, with Aldred and especially McCoy giving the best performances I've seen in their run so far. McCoy's Doctor is exceptional here, teasing out the characters, and allowing them to go exactly where he wants them to, whilst making them believe it was all their own idea. With these themes, and the allowing of the companion to take centre stage, Ghostlight really is the template for the show when it returned, making Ghostlight far more influential in hindsight. It's quite the coincidence that I watched this in the same week as the episode The Haunting of Villa Diodati, with which it shares a number of similarities. I also had the advantage of being able to watch all three episodes in one sitting, something the weekly audience of 1989 couldn't have had the opportunity to do. Sadly, the conclusion, when Light actually shows up, is botched, thanks to a slightly campy performance from John Hallam and a costume straight out of the original Star Trek. There's complexity to Ghostlight, and its subtleties can be lost if you're not paying attention, but that'll happen when you have to lose 25% of your run time. I'll never understand why the producer, John Nathan-Turner, didn't leave Battlefield as a three-part story as it was written, and then let this be the four-part where it so desperately needed to be. Performances, the aforementioned Hallam side, are all great, and the lighting and set exemplary. Gone are the harsh lights of the Baker and Davison eras, and a more moody palette is employed, to the benefit of the show. It's also interesting to see the special features for this episode. Sophie Aldred loves it, not only for her character, but the mood and atmosphere of the story, and her explanations to McCoy and others show that she at least clearly understood what writer Mark Platt was going for. McCoy is less certain, but makes it there in the end, and bless script editor Andrew Cartmell for really trying to explain it in simple sentences. He doesn't quite succeed, but I applaud the attempt. New series writer Pete McTighe, who loves the story, is on hand to explain to another new series writer, Joy Wilkinson, who has never seen it, the joys of the episodes, and she too ends up really appreciating it. By contrast, Davison-era companions Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton aren't impressed. And by Aldridge's own account, even the director Alan Waring had trouble answering questions about the story and had to keep phoning writer Mark Platt. Platt's novel for the serial is very good, expanding on many of the ideas, giving chapters and scenes over to the supporting characters, and overall making the story easy to follow, but that robs it a little bit of its mystique. Part of the delight of Ghostlight is its atmosphere, and that it doesn't make it easy for you. You have to pay attention to it. This isn't bubblegum telly. This is complexity. And that's why this serial has seen its stature grow over the years. Sadly, as the last recorded show of the season, Ghostlight would hold the distinction of being the last Doctor Who story shot at the BBC for over a decade and a half. The Curse of Fenric erred next, which screws up the continuity of the season a little. Fenric exists in two versions on the Blu-ray, the original four-part version, which apparently had to lose 12 minutes across its runtime, and an extended version, which has those 12 minutes put back in. Everyone on the internet seems to recommend the extended version, but more and more I begin to think that there's a subset of fans who think that seeing all the footage makes something better. It doesn't. I did wonder if my decision to watch the extended cut affected my feelings on this story, but I just couldn't get into it. It felt meandering and all over the place, the storyline never really kicking in enough to warrant the extended running time of the feature-length format. Maybe I should have watched the four-part version. The Curse of Fenric, written by Ian Briggs, sees the Doctor and Ace land at a top-secret military naval base in 1943. There they find Dr. Judson, inventor of the Navy's Ultima device, a codebreaker used to decipher runic inscriptions in a crypt in a nearby church. The base commander, Millington, is more into research about toxic bombs that will bring about an end to the war. The Russians are trying to steal the Ultima as vampiric hermivores also roam the land, and the Doctor discovers it is all due to an ancient evil, Fenric. Key to Fenric's schemes is the Doctor's companion, Ace. The father-daughter relationship between Ace and the Doctor is played up very nicely throughout this one, even as she confronts him about his manipulations and scheming. And there's a lovely guest turn from Nicholas Parsons as Reverend Wainwright, a man of the cloth, losing his faith due to the war. Faith is a big part of the story, alongside some nice World War II intrigue, and Ace again realising the Doctor has taken her to an important place in her own personal history, even if he never cops to it. Sadly, there's also the rubber-faced Hermivores, some time-travel shenanigans involving Ace meeting her mum as a baby, and the underwater vampires, and as such, something gets lost. Fenric is yet another displaced-in-time eternal evil, but I never actually figured out what his game was. The Doctor suggests he's an evil spirit that was created with the universe, but that's never really followed up on. Likewise, I didn't really get the point of the Hermivores, other than this is Doctor Who in the 80s and we need rubber aliens in the. I think the problem with Fenric is there's simply too much going on that isn't explored, and a nice Cold War-type spider armour involving Ace's family may have been easier to digest. Unlike Ghostlight, which has a lot going on but which all comes together satisfactorily, Fenric has too much going on simply because the story felt it had to have monsters in it. I'm also not a fan of the It's All Connected trope, which rears its ugly head here. According to Fenric, Ace meeting the Doctor was part of a larger scheme. Fenric transported Ace to Iceworld in a time storm, which is where she first met the Doctor, and he deliberately made her a pawn in the complex game between It and the Doctor. As part of the Doctor's new Machiavellian nature, he seemed to be aware of this from the very first meeting, although Ace isn't. I don't think this kind of retcon is ever as clever as the writers think it is, unless it's baked in from the beginning. And this was no exception. Fenric does pick up a lot at the end. The Doctor having to break Ace's faith in him, thematically very relevant, but heartbreaking in execution is well played by both Aldred and McCoy. But by that point, it's too little too late. The Curse of Fenric isn't in any way bad. Production values are nice, the show gets a lot of bang from its book by being entirely on location, and the performances are uniformly good throughout. I just wasn't engaged. Maybe it was my curse to find this one a little dull. The extras, though, are, as ever, fascinating. Fenric is apparently a boat that left me on the island, as the actors and writers all love this one unreservedly. So, because I'm a professional, I re-watched the serial in its original four-part configuration over four days. And yes, it worked better. That's why this episode is a little bit later than it should have been. This did get me to thinking. Maybe the feature-length version was a mistake. See, the writers construct their scripts to the running time. If they're writing a half-hour drama, the beats, the action, the quiet moments, the exposition will all occur at the moment best suited to the length of the script they are writing. When the films came back for this episode, and it was clear the story would need to be cut down, there was talk of it being made into a five-part story. But Briggs resisted that notion because he'd written the script to build to three separate cliffhangers. Recutting would have spoiled that. I think this is the case with the feature-length version. The serial is not a 115-minute movie. It's four 25-minute TV shows. If Briggs were writing a 115-minute movie, he would have structured the story differently. Perhaps that's why it didn't work for me as I originally watched it, because that's not how it was supposed to be seen. The pacing is off. The structure is different. Maybe I should have watched the third version of the story on the discs, four extra-length episodes instead of the feature, but I didn't. Not that dedicated. Especially when I'm not being paid. Finally, the last serial broadcast in Doctor Who's initial 26-year run was Survival, written by Rona Munro. The only series writer to also write for the latest iteration of the series, contributing the eaters of light for Peter Capaldi's final season. Survival was interesting in that I'd never seen any of it, so it was a completely new story to me. I don't know if that affected how I saw it, but I really enjoyed it. In this story, the Doctor takes Ace to present-day Perivale, present-day obviously being 1989, so she can stop by and see how her friends are doing. However, the Master has led a race of cheetah people to Earth to hunt and to feed. The Doctor and Ace, plus assorted civilians, are dragged into the proceedings and must fight to survive on an alien world. Survival is progressively modern for the time, something that amused me greatly. The story is swamped in lesbian subtext, Ace's best friend is a person of colour, and her other two friends are subtly implied to be gay. Monroe's themes of survival of the fittest harken back to the discussion of evolution in light, and there's even different representations of masculinity, with the TA sergeant thinking that hitting everything gets the job done, versus the Doctor's more pacifistic approach to the problem, i.e. just trying to get people to talk. The Doctor's annoyance, as his every attempt at a breakthrough being undercut by Patterson's gung-ho violence-is-the-answer tactics, is nicely handled. Production values are quite high here, with the entire story shot on location. And although Cheetah Planet is yet another quarry, the use of paint box to colour the sky makes it look suitably eerie. The Cheetah people and the animatronic cat are not quite as successful. The Cheetahs still look like people in cuddly costumes, but in Doctor Who's defence... We haven't managed to make people look any more convincing as cats 30 years later. Once again, the story takes place almost entirely on Earth, as the entire season has. Another way it felt quite modern. The TARDIS appears in a normal suburban area, also foreshadowing the Doctor's meeting of Rose Tyler. Survival is interesting in that it was not intended to be the final show of the season. And as it turned out, the final story ever Well, for 15 years, anyway. The order of the stories was shuffled around before transmission, and the Forth's Survival has no nods or winks to this being the end, no final episode conclusion, nothing. It's just another episode of Doctor Who. Perhaps that was fitting. Leaving the Doctor and Ace wandering around in time and space meant the show was ripe for reinvention, as novels, audio adventures, high-camp pantomimes, one-off charity specials, and a TV movie. Rona Munro's novel goes back to her original ideas and script that was toned down by John Nathan Turner in the editing. Originally, Ace's friend, Midge, was kicked to death by the other boys in a true demonstration of survival of the fittest theme, similar to Lord of the Flies, and then they turned on Ace. In the show, Turner felt this was too graphic, so it resulted in Midge dying of burns received in his clash with the Doctor. This also means that the other boys turning on Ace doesn't have the impact in the show as we haven't seen them all turn feral. Monroe changes the ending back to her original intent. She also changes the actual end, removing the monologue that closed out the series and was written once the producers knew the show wasn't coming back. Overall, season 26 was very interesting. I hadn't seen a number of these stories before, or not in their entirety anyway. I think I caught an episode of Battlefield when it would heard and watched it for old time's sake, but mostly the Doctor and I had parted company. I was a teenager in the late 80s, Doctor Who was kid stuff. I liked Aliens and Terminator, but let's be brutally honest, Doctor Who just wasn't good in the mid-80s. There are YouTube channels galore devoted to how awful the current run is and how it should be rested, when in point of fact, even with the Duff episodes, it cannot possibly be the worst era of Doctor Who when seasons 22, 23 and 24 exist. What struck me watching this was that it's very influential on the new run. Ace is the protagonist, the Doctor is a secondary character, even if he's always manipulating events from behind the scenes, a thread running through all the stories this year except survival. In Battlefield, the Doctor learns that he will set these events in motion in the future. He deliberately instigates the events of Ghostlight and the Curse of Fenric to give Ace important life lessons. Only in survival does he seem to be on the back foot, reacting to the cheetah people and the master, rather than pulling their strings. McCoy and Aldred are a great purring, working very well together, and the chemistry between the two of them is palpable and real. McCoy seems far more at home, and much better in the role here, when there's some meat to the bones and some subtext to play. Thankfully, he's banished his clownish doctor to the past, which is fortunate as his greatest moments prior to this season was playing the spoons on Keita Mara's boobs. He's grown into the role and we are left to imagine just how good he could have become. Special features are plentiful. There's another great instalment of Behind the Sofa, where Sophie Aldred once again shows her credentials, not only as an actor, but a fan. A great in-depth look at the writing process for the season, and a wonderful analysis of what they had planned for season 27 had the series continued. Before the season completed, McCoy and Aldred were contracted for season 27, but events conspired against them. McCoy's ratings had not been great this year, and still hold the record for the lowest ratings the series has ever had. Let's be honest, though, the BBC had been quietly looking for ways to bury Doctor Who since 1985. The upper echelons at the Beeb felt Doctor Who was beneath them, and they were slightly embarrassed by its success abroad. On a production note, the BBC had no other half-hour dramas in production at this time, making Doctor Who seem even more anachronistic. This dislike of who also extended to a dislike of science fiction generally, with both of the director generals of the BBC at this time expressing a dislike for the genre. As such, even venerable shows like Star Trek, a huge hit for the BBC throughout the years, were parceled off to the ghetto of BBC Two. Any shows to be bought throughout the 90s that were even remotely genre-based, be it the Star Trek sequels, Buffy, Quantum Leap, Twin Peaks or The X-Files, were all scheduled on BBC2 rather than BBC1. Only Lois and Clark booked this trend, and it ended up being a massive hit. Apparently there was an audience for this stuff. Who knew? McCoy and Aldred were later told that their options for the new series would not be picked up. And after 26 years and 694 episodes, the Doctor Who offices closed their doors in August 1990. But this was not the end. Like The Doctor, the series would regenerate and return better and more popular than ever. Now one of the jewels in the BBC's worldwide crown, The Doctor continues. Everything that ever was or ever will be. All of time and space. Where do you want to go? Where to now, Ace? Home. Home? The TARDIS. Yes, the TARDIS. There are worlds out there where the sky is burning, where the seas sleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Some of them's danger, some of there's injustice. Somewhere else the tea's getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. <laughs> Ho. let's have a look at the email, should we? Podcasters, start your engines. It's from Luke Giaconetti. Andy, Luke! I just finished listening to your top 10 TV vehicles countdown episode, and true to form, I agreed with some and scratched my head with others, mainly ones I was unfamiliar with, such as the Coyote, the burn notice iteration of the Charger, or the Torino. I can't argue with your list because it was topped with wolf pretty much says it all. Now, you did mention Seaview from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and that it, along with Sea Quest, was not an exciting vehicle as far as underwater vehicles tend to rely on tension, more so than excitement. To this, I would counter with Seaview's companion vehicle, the Flying Sub. Decades before Deep Space Nine added the Defiant to give the heroes a smaller scale vehicle to have adventures with, Erwin Allen did it on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Of course, the really amusing timing comes from Stingray itself. Both Stingray and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea started in 1964, but The Flying Sub did not debut until the second season in 1965. So, did Alan or ABC TV perhaps see Stingray and think that the submarine show needed something similar, or is this simply a case of parallel evolution? That's an exceptionally good question. Obviously, Anderson was shopping his stuff around the world, so it is possible Alan and awesome ABC executives saw Stingray at one of those conferences they have where they show TV pilots and people decide what they're going to buy for their networks and such. But I obviously I don't know what Stingray's US airing was. Did it err on a network? Did it air in syndication? When did it start? I have no idea when, when Stingray started airing in the States. So, you know, and obviously not as easy back then to see shows from other countries as it is nowadays. So it could just be parallel evolution, it could be like you say, the producers realised as with Deep Space Nine, they needed a vehicle to take them off the ship every now and again. Having entire episodes on the station or on the ship got a little bit limiting, which is why The Defiant came about, and I would imagine it was probably just a similar thing with with, um, with the flying soap. I would have thought. Probably no conspiracy though, sadly. Hello dog. Now, given my predilection for Japanese science fiction, and referencing our previous correspondence relating to British and Japanese studios, both producing model-centric special effects shows at the same time, half a world away, I have to at least mention a couple of vehicles from the East. The term used in Japan is mecha, which simply means machine, so while in the West we use the term to mean a robot of some sort, in Japan this could be anything from a fantastic car to a sci-fi train to a space jet, whether it turned into a robot or not. And given Japanese fans' love of statistics and metrics, vehicles are usually welcome, as they provide a plethora of stats for fans to pore over. Ooh, this model has a higher top speed, but the upgrade has more armament, etc. The Ultraman series, although anchored by giant heroes and monsters, has always had an emphasis on support vehicles, utilised by the organisations on the show. The original show's Jet VTOL is a classic, Vertical Takeoff and Landing, which I know from reading Flash comics, is a classic of Japanese sci-fi, a clean, slippery design which always reminds me of an earlier age, like something out of the Flash Gordon strip. Not just a transport, these vehicles were often pressed into combat duty against monsters as well. This trend continued with the rest of the Ultra series, starting with the Ultra Hawks from Ultra 7 and all the way up through the modern series. Another series I want to mention is Cayman Rider, literally Masked Rider, which has long been defined by the use of motorcycles. Motorcycles and motorbikes became very popular in Japan in the late 1960s and into the 1970s, owing to fuel economy and urban sprawl primarily. So the incorporation of motorcycles into popular entertainment was a natural fit. The first Cayman Rider's bike was named Cyclone, built off of a Suzuki T20, and started the trend which is still going strong today. It's a wonderful piece of early 70s design, with white body cladding around the front fender and swooping race-style windscreen. In the deep rabbit hole of Cayman Rider toys and merchandise, I own exactly one bike collectible, and it is the Cyclone. I won't get too into it, but there are also wonderful super vehicles such as the 99 machines used by the GoGo5. Go Go 5 or the Go Go Gear vehicles used by the Boken- ah, Bokenger, ah, right, I say. Similar to the Thunderbird machines when it comes to the realm of the fantastical and equally diverse to handle many different environments and scenarios. My favourite of this type of machine is Go Liner 5, massive locomotives which can link together into one train, carrying other 99 machines into battle, or forming the absolutely massive robot, the Grand Liner. Anyway, I have gone on at length about shows you likely don't have much interest in, so I will sign off by saying thanks for the vehicular countdown and looking forward to whatever else is coming out of the palace in the future, Luke. I've heard of Cayman Rider. Jason Trenner keeps mentioning Cayman Rider to me. That sounds quite interesting. I may have to see if there's any of them on archive and give one or two of them a watch, because that does. these things do sound right up my alley, don't they? Anyway, thanks Luke, that was quite interesting That was that was quite interesting to look at uh, the Japanese vehicles Which again, you could probably make an entire show out of Just the Japanese vehicles, just like you could out of the Jerry Anderson stuff Charlie Niemeyer has emailed in, catching up on the palace Hey Andy, hey Charlie I have been meaning to write for weeks now And as per usual, I fail to find the time Well, having kids will do that to you mate Anyway, I enjoyed your coverage of who took the super out of Superman. Bronze Age Superman is kind of my jam, and this is my favourite Superman story, but I still agree with your assessment. I will freely admit that I look at the story with rose-tinted glasses and can gloss over the imperfections. Also loving your amazing Spider-Man coverage. Outside of those couple of issues, I've not read any of the issues you covered so far, so it's fun to hear about them from someone who is passionate about the stories and the characters. The Superman 4 commentary was great fun. I need to find my copy of that version. One thing I've noticed that no one else seems to is that I don't believe the wall rebuilding vision was the initial plan. Superman isn't looking at the wall as intensely as he would if he's using vision power. They're quick cuts, but he's acting more like he's acknowledging the cheers from the people. I'm guessing there was supposed to be some scene of him actually rebuilding the wall at super speed. But the director needed some tea so they could no longer afford the effect. That's what it is in the comic adaptation, Charlie. He actually rebuilds it. He doesn't use wall of China, rebuild vision. Which I can't imagine is a power the Kryptonians would ever really have had use for. But whatever. So I, I agree with you. I think that was probably scripted to be him rebuilding it. Finally, your TV vehicles episode. I'm not quite as old as you. (laughs) Piss off. So I've written some of these shows. So I haven't seen some of these shows. But I was quite surprised by the level of nostalgia that hit me whilst listening to the episode. Dukes of Hazard, Batman, Knight Rider and Erwolf were all on TV before I was 10. So I was quite into pretending I was the characters as a kid. Our love seat was perfect for Kit or the Batmobile. I used our coffee table as the General Lee. Mum didn't like us using the love seat because we'd mess up the arms doing the ever important window slide, so we could only do that when she wasn't paying attention. And I used a chair for Erwolf. Most of this involved playing either with my Pop-Pop, he was really good at leading back with me for turbo boosts, or my siblings. So these are all fond memories. Thanks for bringing these back. Oh, any time. As for your rankings, part of my fun for me with the cars is that it didn't require quite as much imagination. I had lots of experience riding in cars, but I never rode in subs, planes, police boxes or helicopters. As such, I'd probably put kit at number one. But it is hard to argue with an experimental attack helicopter full of weapons that made such a distinct sound. My only question is, were you around the motorcycle from Street Hawk? Which, by the by, was also the arm of the couch as long as Mum wasn't around. I've rambled long enough. Hope you enjoyed the new year, Charlie. Host of Charlie's Geek Cast and Ranger Chronicles on the 2 Freaks internet radio network. Where would I put Street Hawk? See, I like Street Hawk as a concept much more than I like the show. I think the pilot for that show had a lot more going for it than the series that follows. The series that follows is rather cookie-cutter and samey and, you know, there's a bit of Blue Thunder in there and a bit of Night Rider and a bit of Erwolf, and quite a lot of Marvel comics and it could have been much more interesting given the premise of the show but that seems to happen with a lot of American TV shows in the 80s, doesn't it? They have these really good premises and then when they get to, to series the network goes oh, let's make this as dumb as it has to be so the advertisers don't get scared away that seems to happen a lot really. that's why a lot of pilots are better than the subsequent series and finally Gene Hendrix has emailed in about yesteryear, hello Gene hello Andy, I just listened to your episode on the Star Wars, Star Trek animated shows of yesteryear ah, yay, see what he did there Like you, I didn't watch droids and Ewoks when they came out, not because I disliked the characters or ideas, but they seemed too kiddy to me. Since I turned ten the year they came out, that really says something. The animated Star Trek, however, was a vastly different story. I didn't watch it first run, not being alive yet, but it was one of the shows on the then relatively new Nickelodeon cable channel, as seen here, Star Trek The Animated Series Nickelodeon Commercial. Oh, that's a link. Yeah, I'll play that. It was not my first exposure to Star Trek that would be my favourite of the movies, the motion picture, but it worked well for me. Filmation shows were a big part of childhood, having religiously watched Flash Gordon, Tarzan, Zorro, He-Man, Fat Albert, Lassie's Rescue Rangers, etc. So it was quite used to the limited animation. Star Trek, as you said, felt a lot more like Flash Gordon and Zorro than it did like He-Man, which was a good thing. These were just good stories told in animation rather than live action. Yesteryear is a great example of what the show could do to extend a story from the original series. I like the predestination paradox in this episode, mainly because that's my favourite version of time travel. The time travel happened because it was always supposed to happen. The only issue I have with that is that Aichaea dies in this version, but didn't previously. There has to be a reason for that, but I haven't come up with one that works. The score, the bird-like alien race, is revisited in the last episode of the first season, The Jihad. The episode just shows how much more can be done with limited animation, even if the title is a little off-putting today. Keep up the great work, Gene, of the Hammer Strikes, the Hammer Podcast, the Quantum Cast, Class 100, Anime Freaks, and lots, lots, lots of other stuff. It's not called Gene, Gene, the podcasting machine for nothing. Well, thank you very much, Luke, Charlie, and Gene, for emailing in. I've got an elsewhere to be. So, Peter Zellner and Olivia Villar, your emails can wait till next time. And what am I doing next time? Uh, at the moment, Torchwood has reappeared on BBC iPlayer in its entirety. So I may revisit that. That may be fun, eh? Uh, if you want to email me, like Luke, Charlie, Jean, Peter and Oliver... Hey kids comics at VirginMedia.com is the place. And remember, it's all going to be okay. See you soon. Bye-bye.